welcome to the preaching ministry of the Agape Baptist Church in George, South Africa. Good morning. If you want to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 36, we're moving right along in this <clears throat> series. I give you a chance to find your place there. Well, as we saw last week uh, in chapter 35, uh, this we've come coming to an end of the focus on Jacob. And uh, <clears throat> we're going to see him again in this storyline, but um, really the rest of the, the rest of the Old Testament record is about his sons, or we could say that the children of Israel, the nation of Israel, and how God interacts with them as his chosen people, and in the anticipation of this one that would crush the serpent's head. In the next chapter, chapter 37, uh, for, planned for next week, we'll see that focus turns to Joseph and really the rest of the, the, the record of Genesis. We'll, uh, we'll see a focus around his life and uh, his obedience to the Lord. Well, before we, before we get... In, in that, we see this uh, genealogy of Esau, and uh, it's kind of a pattern that uh, Moses has set with showing, kind of tying up, tying up the loose ends almost about uh, the, the, the other son. And uh, <clears throat> with Esau, one writer compares uh, this genealogy to walking through an old graveyard. And uh, you looking on the tombstones at the different names, which uh, many don't really have any meaning to you. But uh, sometimes you can read on the, the, the epitaphs that are written there. You can, you can understand something about their uh, character, maybe something about the focus of their life. Uh, and... Um, it also causes you to think about your own life. I don't know if you've ever experienced that as you, uh, you're in the graveyard and you, and you realize these people have come to the, have come to the end of their lives and uh, sometimes uh, there'll be something there, a picture or a, a, a statement about uh, their life. And, and sometimes it reveals that uh, this person uh, trusted in the Lord, they had faith in the Lord, and then sometimes it reveals that they're just totally pagan. That they're, the things they live for were, um, were for themselves, really. And, and so we see here in the life of uh, Esau, uh, from the world's perspective, if, if we say the world's standards, Esau was a huge success in life. And he was the uh, as you know, the, the favored son of his father Isaac. Uh, he was this uh, rugged uh, outdoorsman kind of man, the man's, man's man, we might say, uh, a skilled hunter, and he would, he would become a, a great leader of men. Uh, you remember he, he had this army of 400 men uh, 
that came out to uh, meet Jacob. He would, uh, he would conquer the inhabitants of the land of Seir. And uh, he, his, uh, his descendants, his sons and grandsons would become chiefs and kings and would become the nation of Edom. And so from the world's perspective, he was someone that you could look up to. He, today, an Esau would be a hero. He would be a, probably be, be a wealthy person, you know, like the Rockefellers or someone like that. You know, you could look, look to and say, wow, you know, they've got everything. He, he was a great man, a great success. But Esau failed where it mattered the most. And that is in knowing God and living for Him. And I think you could uh, sum up Esau's life with the, the well-known Latin phrase, carpe diem, seize the day. Or in other words, make the most of today. And for Esau, that meant seizing the pleasures of the moment, living for now without any concern for the future. And certainly the future that God had planned and so we, we see this attitude, if we think back to um, Esau's life, you, you see this attitude when he gave up his birthright. In uh, Genesis 25, you'll re remember, uh, it says in verse 29, Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted Therefore, his name was called Edom, and the, that Edom, meaning red, uh, become, a, become a new name for him. Uh, and um, it's really tied, if you read this genealogy, that comes out again and again. He's making the point that Esau is Edom. He became, his descendants became the nation of Edom, red. And this event kind of comes back into focus. Because this is what Esau's all about. He's about the moment. He's about what I want right now. Who can care about the promise of some future blessing? Uh, the text goes on to say in that event, J Jacob said, well, uh, sorry, Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Uh, and Esau said, I'm about to die of what use is a birthright to me. And Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose up and went his way. And that phrase just kind of gives you the idea he could care less about, about the, the birthright and what he had given up. And the text says thus, in other words, by doing that, Esau despised his birthright. And so the, the promises from God that had come down through Abraham, uh, the, they were great promises, if you remember. Uh, but to Esau, they, they really didn't have any value. He had heard about the grace of God towards his, uh, towards his, his ancestors, um, to Abraham and Isaac. But to them, they were just something you could cast aside and, and just be trodden underfoot. They, they really had no, no meaning uh, for him. And, and so as we think about Esau and his life, we really should ask ourselves the question, what about me? 
What am I living for? What, what is the focus of my life? And uh, when we ask ourselves the question, we have to ask things like, well, do I do things and not do things just to be seen by men? Do I want the commendation of men? Uh, am I living for the moment? Uh, just you know what, what pleases me at the moment, the self-gratification of the flesh. Or is my life characterized by living to please God? Now, none of us ever get that perfectly right, do we? But that, as believers in Christ, that should be the day-by-day desire of our hearts and uh, is to discern what God would have me to do and focus our life around that purpose. And so we're either... You could say, in this contrast, we're either living for today or we're living with eternity in view. Let's read uh, these first eight verses here. I'm not going to read the, the whole chapter and, uh, and torture you through trying to pronounce all the names. But uh, uh, let's, let's read these first eight verses, which really is a, um, an, almost like an introduction or an overview uh, of the genealogy that comes in verse 9. Uh, chapter 36, verse 1. These are the generations of Esau, that is, Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites, Ada, the daughter of Elon, the, the Hittite, Olabama, the daughter of Ana, the, the daughter of Zibion, the Hivite, and Basemuth, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Neboth. And Ada bore Esau Eliphaz, Basemoth bore Ruel, and Olabama bore Yeshu, Jalem, and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives, his sons and his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock and all his beasts and all, the, all his property, that he had acquired in the land of Canaan, and he went into the land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together, and the land of their sojourning could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. Fathers, we come before your word this morning. I pray that you would uh, you would help us to focus on the truth that you would have for us, you, you uh, planned in your word that we might have this record gave through Moses for not only the children of Israel to, to understand, but for us as well. And I pray that you would help us to open our hearts and minds to apply your word to our own life today and tomorrow and the, and the week ahead. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first thing that uh, we see in this section is that of Esau's choices and his, first of all, his choice in wives, and, and you, you hear in that the, the multiple wives, we know that he, he first took uh, two wives from these Canaanites. And so uh, this choice reveals to us that he really didn't have an interest or wasn't interested in the blessing of God. 
he not only takes multiple wives, but more importantly, these wives are pagan Canaanite women. And that went against what he had, the pattern that had been set through Abraham and then uh, with Isaac. And we know that they send Jacob away later uh, to find a, a wife also of the, the family uh, back in northern uh, Mesopotamia. But uh, in, he, he, has the, he marries these Canaanite women who obviously uh, are only leading him further away from God. He, his heart is already focused on himself and he, he disregards God's promises and doesn't uh, hold them to be of that much importance that he would just give it away um, in a moment. But marrying these wives who were idolaters, they're pagans, they, they didn't really know anything of, of the true God, would only lead him further away. And then later, to, to, in the hopes of getting a blessing, he, he marries uh, one of uh, Ishmael's daughters. And we know that later God would warn the children of Israel not to take wives from the inhabitants of Canaan. In uh, the reason being because of the impact that they would have upon their hearts in leading them away from the Lord. And so I think it's, it's obvious to us, it seems illogical to us, but many times we do the same thing. Maybe not in taking a wife, but in making decisions. Making big decisions that are going to take us away from God. Whether it's a decision for a job or a move or or uh, something we buy, or whatever the decisions are, we are daily making decisions, but if we're not thinking about the impact that it's going to have on my relationship to God, is this something that God would be pleased with? Is, is my heart attitude right towards this decision? And then we're setting ourselves up. We're setting ourselves up for failure and to be tempted to turn away from God. Uh, Esau wasn't really concerned about this, evidently. He's, we see him as someone that's pursuing his own desires. Uh, we know that uh, the names that these wives had, the actual names are, are evidently changed, but both, uh, both all of their names are the names that they had before and the names they're given now in this genealogy. They're all focusing on outward appearances or outward, we could say, adornment or beauty. And uh, no doubt Esau's uh, family was beautiful. His five sons plus other daughters that uh, were not named. But they were not beautiful where it really matters the most. Uh, this inner beauty of the heart that loves the Lord. And, you know, in the New Testament, Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 3, writes to wives about this beauty, this inner beauty that uh, uh, the Lord uh, finds precious. Uh, and, and if you want to see that, it's in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. He, he says there, do not let your adorning be external. And that, that word adorning is the word cosmos. And uh, you, hear, you hear the word cosmos 
in it, the, the universe. And it's, uh, it was given, you know, to, to talk about the, the arrangement and the organization of our universe. And from a, from a, from a Christian or believing perspective, God as, the, as a designer, He's beautified the world. You think about even the, the smallest detail that uh, uh, there is a beauty, there's an arrangement there in the universe. And uh, he's using that here to speak of uh, a, a woman's beautifying of herself, which is not a bad thing. It's, it's a good thing to, to want to be attractive, to want to, to dress nicely. But the point that Peter is making is he, he's telling these wives, don't let that be the focus of your beauty. Don't let it be all about the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. And obviously those aren't bad things. But when that is like an ex extravagant and it's, um, it's like the to total focus of who you are. It's all about the outward. And that's the world, isn't it? That's the world that we live in today. It's all about you know, perception and what people think of me and and it's, uh, it's all very fleshly. But he goes on to say, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. And so he's telling, he's telling the, the, the wives, let that be the focus of your life the adorning of your life. Let it be this hidden person of the heart. Notice he used, he says it's an imperishable beauty. You know, regardless of how much money you spend on the outward adorning, it's, it's only good for so long, right? <laughs> it only lasts for so long. And we're all, we all succumb to the reality of aging. And... Um, but he says this inner effort, this inner adornment, it's imperishable. It, it gets better. It just goes on and on and in, into um, eternity because God is well pleased with it. He says in his sight, it's very precious. Well, that's, that's the focus that God would have for us. But we see the opposite with Esau and what he is pursuing uh, he's pursuing the, the instant gratification, the thing that, uh, that looks good on the outside. And so everything seems to be going good with Esau, though. If you look at him, if, if you're one of the Canaanites living in the region, you're thinking, wow, this Esau guy, he's got everything. He's got this beautiful family. He's got, he, he's got sons and grandsons that he can make wealthy and successful. And uh, the only problem is they will grow up not knowing God. And in fact, they will become enemies of God and enemies of the people of God. Well, the second thing that's pointed out here is that Esau chooses to leave Canaan, verses 6 through 8. And the, and the language draws our minds back to who? Uh, Lot, right? We think about Lot and we think about how he left Abraham and he also went east out of the land of Canaan. 
And that leaving was not just physical, it was, it was spiritually leaving as well, wasn't it? It was leaving the place of God's blessing to go his own way. You see, the land of Canaan was the land of God's promise. But uh, there's something about this promise. It was a future promise. Uh, when Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they're, they're sojourning in the land. They're, they're not, it's not theirs, theirs yet. So it's a future promise. And the problem with the future promise is that it requires faith. It requires patience. And sometimes it means you must uh, suffer uh, until you receive the promise. And Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they knew what that meant. They were pilgrims and strangers in the land. And Hebrews chapter 11 really makes that point for these readers in the first century, these Jewish readers who were tempted, uh, and some of them had had come into the, into the assembly of believers, and yet they were vacillating, maybe going back into uh, their old way, into Judaism. And so the, the writer of Hebrews is warning those that um, would turn away. And he, he says from Hebrews 11, verse 13, these all died in faith, Chapter 11 is, is all about emphasizing that to, to, to know God, to worship God, requires faith. And, and he highlights the faith of some of the, uh, the people of the Old Testament. And these all died. These referring to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, those that, were, that God had called into this land and gave promises to them. He says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised but having seen them and greeted them from afar. In other words, they saw the things that God promised by faith, not by physically seeing. They didn't see it in their lifetime, but they believed it. And more than that, he goes on to say, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak Thus, make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. And if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. And so not only were they, by faith, looking and believing God, they were going beyond this land of Canaan in their, in their expectation. They were expecting a heavenly home, a heavenly city with the Lord. And that's the same promises the Lord has made to us, isn't it? He's not promised us that everything is, is going to be received now, as some people want to tell you, he, that, that we have you know, health, wealth, and prosperity now. But the promises that God has given us are very rich indeed, but we must be willing to wait until God's ready to reveal them to us until he comes back and he's going to establish a new heaven and a new earth and he's he's going to bring bring down this this new city this Jerusalem and all of its glory and splendor and holiness but we see it by faith don't we well this life this life of Abraham 
and Isaac and his brother Jacob. This life of waiting, of having faith, it just wasn't for Esau. He didn't want to wait. He didn't want to live by faith. He is like Joel Osteen. He wanted to live his best life now. You don't know Joel Osteen? <laughs> Some of you know this famous book, my best, you know, your best life now. And Esau, he he would love that book. He would run out and buy that book and just you know live by those principles, because it tells him exactly what he wants to hear. He wants that kind of life. He wants it all now, and he doesn't want it to cost him anything. He doesn't want to repent of sin. He doesn't want to uh, turn away from himself and to acknowledge his, his sin and to trust in Christ. He just wants all the blessings. And he wants them now. Well, sometimes after, after, uh, sometime after Jacob left, uh, you remember he had to go away and um, uh, go to his brother Laban. Sometime during that 20 years that he's, he was away, uh, Esau establishes a home for himself in Seir. That's east of uh, the area where, uh, where Isaac was living, the southern portion there of uh, Israel, or that time Canaan. And uh, we, we, don't, we don't know, but maybe this was like a second home for him. Uh, like maybe, maybe some people have you know, summer homes in a region that's uh, cooler and nicer. And um, uh, it's, that's very possibly what it was for him, because we know when when Jacob comes back and, and has this rec- meeting with uh, Esau and this reconciliation, at that time um, Esau is has a home. He's living at that time. He was living in Seir, but he's evidently still also living in Canaan. So he he must have uh, two two places there and he's gradually you know uh, establishing life in Seir but uh, when Jacob gets back and settles back into the land eventually where where Isaac was at in that in that southern region uh, at some point he leaves permanently and this text points out that uh, uh, you know, the, his reasoning was that there was just not enough room for them both uh, to live there. Their, their, their livestock and all was too much. And so at some point, Esau leaves permanently to go live in this region of Seir. And the text uh, makes a, a point here that... Uh, his sons, Esau's sons, were born in Canaan and he took them out of the land. And you know that Jacob's sons, except for the last, Benjamin, were all born out of the land and, and Jacob brought them back into the land. And it's just interesting that the text points that out. And it probably had uh, some interest to the Israelites who are now, when they get this word, they've either are, are or have been in Egypt. They were there for 400 years plus. And um, they've all been born out of the land. But God wants them to know that it's still their promise. 
And he's taking them back to the land. He's using Moses to lead them back. And, uh, and so it's an interesting thing that comes out of that, out of that passage. And, uh, one of the things that we see in the following uh, verses, this long section from verse 9 down through the end of the chapter, is that Esau becomes a powerful man. He, he becomes the father of Edom. This area of Seir becomes the nation of Edom. And we, we know that, uh, that by the time Jacob comes back and meets uh, with Esau, he's already become this, uh, he already has this power to, to muster an, an army of 400 men. And, uh, and so as we see this list, it supports this image of, um, of Esau and his power and his um, warring um, personality that, that he has. He's taking, taking possession of, of this whole region. In verse 9 through 14, there's a list of five sons and ten grandsons. And uh, during this initial time, there is intermarriage, but these other these pagan, other wives from the area seem to have a secondary role um, in as as wives. And uh, the next section after that, verse fifteen to nineteen, uh, they have become completely assimilated into that um, into that uh, region, into the population of that area. Uh, the genealogy lists 14 sons that are chiefs or tribal leaders. Verse 19 says, These are the sons of Esau, that is Edom, and these are their chiefs. <clears throat> and so, sons here, as often used in genealogies, doesn't just refer to the immediate son, but to the grandson and the great-grandson and, and so forth. And so these descendants of Esau become... Uh, leaders, their chiefs, they're, they're like um, uh, over different tribal regions. And, uh, and so we see this progression of his influence and power of his descendants. Verse 20 to 30 uh, shows that Esau's descendant, or at least one, had married into a leading family in Seir. And that uh, by that time, Esau really has control, or his descendants has control of that uh, region in that land. And then uh, verse 31 to 39 kind of sum up a uh, list of kings who reigned in Edom. Verse 31 says, These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. Now, that's an interesting insertion there, isn't it? In other words, before... Uh, Israel and Jacob's descendants have ever had any form, formation of a, of a government. There's no kings, um, especially they're down in Egypt, slaves. Um, they, are, they are growing, they're multiplying, they're becoming a, a great multitude, but they have, no, they have no centralized leadership or government. They're under the control of the Egyptians. And while that's all taking place, Esau and his descendants are becoming a nation, and they're they're becoming kings and and ruling uh, in that in that region. And the um, 
the last section, 40 to 43, shows the expanse of that region with their, um, with their power over areas and uh, becoming the nation of Egypt, Edom. And so Esau is like an overlord of, of this area. And if you think back to what Isaac had prophesied, you remember when uh, Jacob deceives him and he takes the blessing, uh, Esau wants a blessing, but Isaac can't give him a blessing because he's already given it away. But he makes these statements um, in chapter 27, verse 40. It's really a prophetic statement. He says, By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. And so we see that, uh, you know, in this, in this genealogy, that's exactly what's happened. He's, he's become a powerful ruler in the land, and his descendants have uh, taken control of this region and become a, a nation. And they are, <clears throat> they are a nation that is, becomes very antagonistic against uh, Jacob's descendants. And all of this power and influence of Esau is set in contrast to Jacob. He's still a pilgrim and a stranger in the land of Canaan. Notice how, how, how the Moses sets this up. The next verse in chapter 37, verse 1, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojourning in the land of Canaan. And so it's quite a contrast. Although... Jacob is is wealthy, according to the you know the standard of the, the people of that day. He he is wealthy, but he still doesn't he, he still doesn't have a, a home really. He's he's still wandering around in a in a land that doesn't belong to him. And I, I sometimes wonder if uh, if Jacob ever uh, felt uh, envious of his brother. Uh, and all the success that he's having over there in um, in Sierra, uh, we we don't know. We, text doesn't tell us uh, how Jacob's feeling about all this. But even if you have plenty, they relate to your own thinking. It's easy to always want more, isn't it? <laughs> it's easy to you know see the excess success of others <clears throat> and think, well, why why don't I have that? Why doesn't that happen for me? And many times the, the people of God suffer and struggle. When it, it seems that, that people that don't love God, people that do like they want to do, uh, they are succeeding. And they don't have any problems like we do, but many times it's only what we perceive. We don't see what's in their heart and what's really happening, but the perception often is, Oh, they, they just, everything is going good for them. And so I wonder if, uh, if Jacob was sometimes envious of that success. I want you to ima imagine with me that um, Esau, with all of, his, all of his success over there in Sierra, maybe he comes home for Canaan for a visit. And uh, he, he's there with the family. Maybe they're eating together a meal. And Esau, he says, Hey, Jacob, how are you doing? Um, 
I see you guys are still living in tents over here. <laughs> uh, you know, just wandering around in this land of promise. <laughs> I, wanted to, I want to show you some pictures of this new house we just finished building. And he, he gets out his iPhone and he flips through there and says, hey, you know, look at there. That, you know, we did this and we did that. And yeah, that's my BMW in the driveway. Well, not really, but you get the picture, right? There have been most likely opportunities for this friction. I mean, they had reconciled, but Jacob is somebody who's trying to live for God. He's still in this land. And Esau, he's not trying to live for God. He's, he's living for himself. Everything seems to be, be going well. He's conquering. He's ruling. He, he, might, he may have looked at, uh, at Jacob and said, you know, how, how's it going with your sons? I, I see they're still chasing their sheep around. Well, I guess somebody's got to do it, you know. Have you ever heard anything like that? Um, I, I hear you're going, you're going to church and trying to live for God. Well, I guess that's good, you know. That's, 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 good. Some people, that's good for some people. You hear things like that. And then he has opportunity to brag on his sons and how they're ruling and how everything's going well for them. And he might have, he might have said, I heard what happened at Shechem. I bet your God was angry about that. Well, we, we, we've become so powerful in Sierra that we just do what we want to and nobody can say anything about it. Well, we don't know if any of these kind of conversations ever happened. We don't know if Jacob became envious of the success of Esau. But it's the, it's the kind of things that happen to believers today. And, and it's representative of this tension that builds between these two, what would become peoples, nations. And if you live for God in this world... Uh, the unsaved of, of the world around you will become, become uncomfortable with you. As long as you're religious, it's okay. But if you start uh, trying to live out the truth of God's Word and you believe what God has said, even when it's not popular, even, even when it's in conflict with what the world believes, you'll find out <clears throat> that <clears throat> you have some enemies. You'll find out that you'll have people that are... That they. They may be convicted of their own sin just by being around you. And uh, they want to feel better about themselves, and so many times they will uh, put you down. They, they will insult you. They will insult your God, which, which uh, makes them feel better about, about their own life. And this tension is there because there's a tension between God and this world, and, and the God of this world is Satan. And when, when, we, when we organize our lives to live for God, we've set ourselves in opposition to the world. And this world does not love God. It does not love the Jesus of the Bible. Religious people will, will say they love God and even love Jesus, but they've reimagined God. And they've reimagined Jesus to be the God that they like. And so we find that there is this tension there. And instead of us changing God, the God of the Bible changes us. 
that as, as we put our faith and trust in Christ, God transforms us and He is in this process of changing us to be more like Him. And many times that process is a difficult process. Many times it brings difficulty into our life. Think about Esau, how he's become this powerful nation. And Jacob, he's still wandering around in this land and his descendants before long are going to be going down to Egypt because of the famine. And they're eventually going to become slaves there for 400 years. For you know this long period of time. It doesn't seem from outward perspective like they are a chosen, chosen nation. It doesn't seem like they're a blessed people. And yet God is working in all of that for his own purposes in their lives to bring about his glory. And by his choices, Esau has set his family on a trajectory, on a direction. His descendants would become a nation that hated God. And, and because of that, they hated God's people. And, and we see that in the later development of the Old Testament some 500 years later, is Israel, the descendants of, of Jacob, they've come out of this bondage. They're in the, in the, the wilderness. You remember, they had, to, they had to stay there for 40 years, wandering around in the wilderness because they, this, the whole generation didn't, must die off because they didn't believe God. And now this, this new generation is ready. God's got them a point where they're ready to go into the land and they... And they want to pass through Edom. And if you want to read this later, it's in Numbers chapter 20. And Moses sends messengers there and asks the king of that time, the king of Edom, to let them pass through the land. And, and the king says, no, you can't pass through our land. And, and, he, and he asks again, let us just go along the king's highway, king's highway this route that went up through um, that region from, from south up through the north, the, re, the way they needed to go. And he says, we'll pay for anything that we need. We, even the water will pay for it. And the king of Edom said, no, you, you will not pass through. And he sends out his army to block the way uh, so they could not come through. And they had to go around a longer route to, to get to where God was sending them. And this hostility with Edom would continue. Uh, one, of the, one of the big events that will happen later that, that God condemns them for is that when Babylon, you remember later when Babylon comes and, and takes captive the southern portion of Israel, the Judah, uh, and takes them away into captivity. Well, some of those people try to escape and they go south and the Edomites block their way and give them over to the Babylonians. And so this, this, this hostility there between these people. Uh, and as we come into the time of Christ, do you remember Herod the Great, King Herod? He was an Edomite. And you remember that he tries to kill this king, the king of kings and the lord of lords, that the wise men told him about that they've come to worship. And in an effort to kill that baby or that young boy, 
they kill all the all the the children in Bethlehem that were two years and younger. And so this hostility continues, and it's it's ironic, but, but the descendants. You have these descendants of these two nations, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and Herod. And um, this uh, animosity of the Edomites and Herod, he's, he's still protecting himself, still living for himself, and what pleases him. Well, as we think about this in conclusion, the Lord has called us to a narrow path. Uh, the narrow path is, by its uh, imagery, a path sometimes with difficulty. It's, it's a path that um, we get on by putting our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. We turn from ourself, repent of our sin, trust in Him, and we continue on this path by His grace, by His enablement, but it's a path that is in opposition to the world around us and the Herods of the world. And they often, these powerful leaders of the world, they often have the influence of the day. And many times the believers don't seem to have a voice. But one day, the Lord of glory is coming back, isn't He? And one day He's coming back with power and glory and He's going to put down all opposition to His rule. And so the question is, which side are we going to be on? Are we going to be with the world? Are we going to be with the Lord, coming with Him in power and glory? And so we must ask the question, so today, what am I living for? Am I living for Him? For whom am I living? Am I living for Christ or for myself? Don't be like a man as he looks back on his life and says, I've I've all my life been climbing the ladder of success, only to later discover that this ladder was leaning against the wrong building. And we can do that if we're not careful. We need to make sure that the, the effort of our life, the, the focus of our life, is leaning upon Christ, right? Let me close with Hebrews chapter 12, who sums, sums this up for us. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15 to 16. The warning, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness spring up and cause trouble, and by it many become defiled. God has extended His grace to us. And He's warning, as He warns these people, he warns us, don't fail to receive this grace from God. And don't allow, for whatever reasons, the circumstances, the thing that happened you know, to you in the past, the thing that happened to your family, don't, don't allow this disbelief, this lack of faith to cause uh, a root that, that becomes bitter in your life. He goes on to, to say that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. And that description is Esau. This description of, of one that fails to obtain the grace of God. He had the opportunity. It was there. 
but he despised it. He didn't receive it. And Jacob, with all of his faults, all of his, his failings, he still responded to God as God in His grace appeared to him, grew him unto himself. And if God is reaching out to you in His grace, don't fail to receive Him. Don't fail to, to respond to, to Him in faith. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You, Lord, that You set before us a way of life. and You've given us hope through the Lord Jesus Christ that we could have our sins forgiven, that we could know You, and that we could, we could stand upon the promises that You've given us. Lord, we praise You for that, and we thank You and I pray for someone here this morning that you're speaking to and that you're convicting that they would not fail to receive your grace. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.